Thanks for subscribing to the Zoncom podcast. These are the tips and tricks to become an Amazon millionaire. Here is your host, Andrew Erickson. He is all things Amazon, and so is this podcast. Let's have an Amazon conversation. Hey guys, welcome back to the Zoncom podcast. I'm Andrew Erickson, your host, and I just got back from a trip in China. I was at the Canton Fair and I was doing the whole China magic thing. I think you guys, a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably know about that. China Magic is with Dina Severi and Dan Ashburn. We interviewed Athena three or four episodes ago. It's a really good interview. You should definitely check that one out. Three weeks in China, man, that takes a toll on me. But now I'm back home in San Diego, and I'm here with a visiting professor, Professor Christopher Erickson. And if you notice, he does have the same last name as me. Why is that? Because I'm your beloved father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we do have very similar voices, so you might have a hard time keeping us apart, but that just gives you more evidence that we are related. (laughs) (laughs) I will call you dad from now on, Professor Erickson. Thank you. Um, But just want to say uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. We have like an hour to kill. So I thought, ooh, we should do some like podcasting while we have this hour to kill. My dad is actually a professor of economics at New Mexico State University. Do you want to give a little spiel of what you did? Yeah. yeah. So I'm, uh, as Andrew said, a professor of economics at NMSU. I've been there for 32 years and I'm a full professor. I have 15 or 20 academic publications and hundreds of columns. I've been writing a column for the local paper, uh, the Las Cruces Bulletin, for many years. And recently, we started posting those columns also at krwg.org. KRWG.org is a local public station in Las Cruces. And so I guess that officially makes me a blogger. So I'm like All in right. the 20, I'm like in the 21st century now. <laughs> no more, not not just in the uh, dead wood media, but actually online. And my specialty is, well, I like to say it's the role of finance in economic development that I've often many of my columns and a lot of what I do is aimed at business people. And I'd like to say I'm a a uh, popular public speaker at business events. Nice. Yeah. And so what we're going to talk about today are a few tips for small business owners, because that's what all Amazon sellers are, small business. Although some of you, maybe someone here is a medium size or a large size business, but I think 99% of us are small business owners. And also a big thing I thought would be kind of fun to talk about is a recession. Yes, the R word, the recession <laughs> and what that is and how it when we might know it might happen, and also what to do about it as small business owners. But before we do that, we want to make sure we don't maintain our professionalism. So we're going to go ahead and open up a beer. By the way, it's not a beer. It's actually two beers. All right, cheers. Just one beer, though. We're not going to get too sloppy on this one. (laughs) By the way, I've listened to all Andrew's podcasts, and that one from Scotland was a little, I don't know, (laughs) you would have been grounded had you done that when you were living at home. Yeah, <laughs> that one's one of my favorite podcasts. That's with Kian Golzari. And I think it's episode number four, Founding of Veltra. That one's really funny. We shared an entire bottle of scotch during that interview. So let's get started. Tell us, what is a recession? Well, so I think a better way to put it in context is a, a recession is part of the business cycle. The business cycle is a concept that captures the idea that the economy tends to expand or even boom, and then that's followed by decline and recession. And so an expansion is the normal state of the economy. The U.S. economy grows at about 3% per year, year in, year out. But occasionally we have either slowdowns in growth 
or even negative growth. And if you have negative growth for two quarters, that's usually considered to be a, a recession. Okay, so negative growth of like the entire economy. Yeah, so GDP. Yeah, so the way we measure uh, economic activity typically is gross domestic product adjusted for inflation. And gross domestic product is the total market value of all final goods and services. So it's basically the value of everything that's sold in the economy to final users. And we don't count the intermediate stuff, you know, like a sale from one business to another that's then used to produce yet another item. Oh. Because if you include that stuff, you end up double counting. Okay, so now we know what a recession is. It's just two quarters in a row without GDP growth, right? Or negative growth, right? It's, it's two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. That's correct. Okay, and that's adjusted for inflation, adjusted for seasonality, right? Yep, that's okay. correct. So now how do we know when the next one is coming? Well, one way we don't know how it's coming is by how long it's been since the last one. We right now are in the midst of the longest expansion on record for the United States going back to the 1850s. And so many people say, well, the recession's getting older. It's, it's going to come to an end as it ages and blah, blah, blah. That's all nonsense. Expansions do not age. Expansions continue until something happens to stop them. Some event has to happen that causes the downturn. And it could be we could go a very long time without such an event. And if we do, then the expansion will discontinue. And so you don't have to sit there and say, well, it's been 10 years since the last recession, so the next one must be just around the corner. Rather, you should say to yourself, well, what's the probability of recession this next year? It doesn't matter how old the expansion's been. The probability of recession this coming up year will depend on events that are going on right now. I've heard people always say like the rule of seven, seven years, there's always a recession. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, I guess. And then I looked back at the, at least I looked at the S&P 500, I know it's not GDP, back at the S&P 500, and there's nothing about seven in there. There's nowhere, nowhere. Like even if you look at, you know, you use some sort of fancy pants statistics, whatever, but like if you just look at it, there's no seven anywhere in there. Yeah, I think that seven dates back to the uh, Old Testament where uh, uh, where it was that they're supposed to have seven lean years and seven good years <laughs> or something like that. The Pharaoh had Joseph uh, help him uh, uh, save during the seven good years for the seven year lean years, but there's no, that's not true. So let's talk about what you can look for today that might predict that a recession is coming up in the very near future. Okay. So one thing to look at, and you kind of already mentioned it, and this is probably the single best indicator of the future of the economy, and that is the stock market. And of course, the stock market, the S&P 500 is a good one to look at. The Dow Jones does a good job too. But the S&P 500, because it's an amalgamation of all these uh, companies across wide range of industries in the U.S. economy, if those companies are doing well, and if investors look at those companies and they say, I think earnings are going to be sustained for those companies, or earnings might even be going up, then that's going to push the stock market prices up. And, and that's a good indicator that the economy is going well. As we speak, I don't know what the stock market did today, but yesterday, I believe it closed at a, at a record high. So that's an indicator that even though we're in this very long expansion, it's not coming to an end anytime soon. Now, I have to warn you that the stock market, while it's pretty good about predicting the continuity of the expansion, it's pretty good about continuing the expansion, it's not as great about signaling uh, recessions. And as uh, Paul Samuelson, the very famous economist, 
once said the stock market predicts 10 of the last seven recessions. Uh. <laughs> uh, so so a down market's not as good an indicator as an up market. Up market indicates things are going well. A down market, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to go into recession. Okay. The, the second indicator that's a very strong indicator of what the economy is going to be doing is the yield curve. Now, what the yield curve is, it typically you talk about it for the U.S. Uh, government securities, but you could talk about it for any kind of company. But the key is you're looking at a single issuer, let's say the U.S. government, and you look at short-term interest rates, medium-term interest rates, and long-term interest rates. Typically, short-term interest rates are lower, medium-term interest rates are in the middle, and long-term interest rates are the highest. What interest rates on what? Like the bank? Well, on, on government, yeah. in this example, government debt. And short-term means like a year or a it's day? Less than a year. Less than a year, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you can get more fun. You can say three-month and six-month and one year. I mean, you can you can dice up however you want. Okay. But I'm trying to simplify it. So. Okay. <laughs> So short-term are low, medium-term are in the middle, and long-term are high. That's the typical case. But sometimes the yield curve inverts, and the short-term interest rates are high, and the long-term interest rates are low. And when that happens, we call it an inverted yield curve. And that's a pretty good predictor of a recession. What is it right now? Well, right now, it's not inverted, but it's very fat. But two months ago, it was inverted. And so two months ago, we had this inverted yield curve indicated that we were coming up on a recession. And the usual rule of thumb is you say the next six months. By the way, the stock market's for the next six months also. So we have this one signal that says that we are going into a recession. That's the inverted yield curve, which has, by the way, stopped. So it gave a signal of a recession the next six months, and then it stopped. And then we have this other indicator, which is the stock market, which says that a recession is not on the horizon. So we have contradicting evidence. I'll tell you one thing also that's not a good indicator of a recession is the unemployment rate. Okay, why? Very often the unemployment rate will increase when people who were sitting out the economy because they didn't think they could find mm. a job decide, wait a minute, the economy's doing pretty well, I can find a job. And so they enter the job market and at least briefly they're unemployed. And so the unemployment rate tends to go up as the economy is, particularly as if people perceive the economy is actually doing better than they had originally expected. And then it works the other way around. If the economy is really in the dumps, a lot of people leave the labor force and give up looking for work and the unemployment rate will fall, even though the economy is doing poorly. Okay. So you said that we have any given year, 20% chance of having a recession. Something like that. Yeah. And we've had record high in the stock market a yeah. couple days ago or yeah. yesterday or something. Yeah. And then we have had... I think we've had three in the last week, three record highs okay. in the last week. And we've had an inverted yield curve two yeah. months ago, but not now. Right. What are the chances that we will experience... You're on record. You're on yeah. tape. Yep. You're, yep. On, you're yep. on digital tape right now. Yep. Yep. And it's uh, the middle of November 2019. What are the chances we will see a recession in the next 12 months? 40%. 40%. Twice background. Twice background. So still less than likely. Yes. But more than average. Yes. Okay. And there, and I and I base that on the yield curve because okay. the, the stock market is booming. I view that as a positive, but the yield curve is a pretty good indicator too. But of course, this is one of those nice predictions, right? I'm not saying yes, no. Uh -huh. If there's no recession, then I'll just say I was right. And if there is a recession, so well, I said there's a 40% chance, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is one of the problems. It's like the, it's like the weatherman, right? You never say, yes, it's going to rain at this time at this point. 
you just give it a probability. But I do think it's a better than, it's, it's about twice the background probability right now. Another thing that's a little bit different this time around that people don't take into account is, the, or may, maybe do take into account and should take into account, is the fact that we have this kind of artificial stimulus of the economy that arose from the tax cut last year. Mm. And that artificial stimulus in the tax cut is playing out. It's, it's kind of spent now. And so we had that boost last year. And when you have a boost one year, it tends to be made up for the next year with a, a bit of a contraction. So the fact that we're, we're not getting t- another tax cut is kind of a negative. Okay. So us being us, meaning the audience and myself and everyone else being small business owners, generally, I think the audience that I've looked at, they're, they're single employee or they're kind of like single person companies, probably half of them are single person companies and half of them have two, three employees, that kind of small business. Yep. What do small businesses do during recessions? What does it feel like? And is there anything we should do differently? Well, of course, it depends on exactly what product you're selling, but most Amazon retailers are selling products rather than services. Services tend to weather recessions better than... Really? Yes, because if you need your sink unplugged, you need your sink unplugged, and so the plumber has a job. But but speaking of the sink, you don't have to buy a sink. You can put off buying a sink, a new sink. So people who are the the the, the higher the ticket your of your product, the higher the price of your product, the uh, more it's a luxury versus a necessity, the more that it's durable good meaning that you can buy one this year and you can make it last a couple of years. So you might normally buy one every three years, but in a recession you might put off buying it for a year uh, and go okay. on. So durable consumers, high ticket items. Those are the kind of things that tend to be most sensitive. And people selling those kind of things should be the most worried. If you're selling something that's kind of a staple that people buy routinely all the time or things that they can't put off buying that they have to buy when they have to buy it, like, for example, unplugging a sink, then those are all things that are less sensitive to the business cycle. So like cat litter would be a necessity. You really can't not buy cat litter. If you litter. own a cat, that's true. Cat. Yeah. If you own a, if you don't own a cat, you don't yeah. need cat litter. <laughs> <laughs> but getting cat toys might be that's a, a that's a very good example. Yes. Cat litter is a necessity. Cat toys are something that likely to be more sensitive. Okay. And then what would be like a long term thing, like a cat litter box? I yeah. guess it's like one thing you probably need to buy. Well, I, I was thinking more like a stove or a refrigerator. Okay. Or a car. Oh, okay. A car is a classic example. Those are what we call consumer durables or things that can last more than one year. Clothing is kind of in a middle range there because uh, if you buy, you know, people buy clothing all the time, but you can probably, instead of buying a new shirt every month, you buy a new shirt every two months or, or whatever it is that you have your offering by. Being a college professor, I have no sense of fashion, so I don't even know. I just wear the same thing I've been wearing for the last 20 years. So now if we have an idea of how much these things affect us, what do we do about it? 40% chance of recession. What does a recession feel like when you are a well, small business? Well, so a recession, so remember that trend growth is something like 3% a year. So if the economy is growing 3% a year, that that's average. Recently, in recent few years, it's been running more like 2.5%. There's some reasons for that having to do with the baby boomers retiring and having a little smaller workforce because our slower workforce growth because of that. So we're running it, let's say we're running 2.5%, 3% a year. 
a recession will often shave 5% off of that. So negative growth of 2%. Now, these are all annualized numbers. So it's negative growth of 2% over, say, six months or nine months. And then the economy tends to rebound. And so in those circumstances, the average business person is going to see a downturn in their sales of something like 5%. Okay. So but, 5%. So let's say, let's say you're but like, no one out there's average. Sure. Okay. So if you are an average product, so let's say you sell both kitty litter and cat toys together and approximately the same amount of each, then you'd expect to see about a 5% decline in demand. But if you're growing your business and you're seeing 50% growth each year, because you're just destroying, you're listening to this podcast and listening to all the tips and tricks on how to become an Amazon millionaire. You, uh, your 50% growth might be a 45% growth. Is that how it works? Well, I, you see, that's the interesting thing because often it's very hard to grow in a recession. So for example, now, of course, if you, if you got a brilliant product and there's no competitors and you got a great marketing plan, you can overcome this. But let's suppose you're entering a market that's already kind of a, that's got an existing competitors in it. We're talking about a decline on average of 5% for the market. And it's pretty hard to expand into a contracting market. And so if you're trying to grow rapidly. Why? uh, I mean, if there's just 5% less, fewer people buying, you you can still compete. You're just eating a pie that's 5% smaller. That's correct. But you also got to remember that the people who are in the market already because they're hurting are going to cut their prices. Uh, Okay. So it's it's not that it's not a market that's contracting. It's a market that has people in there who are desperate to keep their sales up. And they already have inventory and they're already yeah. incurring inventory costs. And so they're sitting there going, I got to get this inventory out of the warehouse. And so I'm going to cut my prices. That's not the time to come into the market. Okay. So so if, you're, if you are trying to grow aggressively, it's a recession is often a time you want to trim a little bit. Maybe not try to be as aggressive. Okay. So not be as aggressive. So let's say if we are aggressive, just be less aggressive. Well, if you know, we're, this if is we're like just mildly aggressive, just kind of like just well, you're, weather the storm. You're, you're asking me to be, uh, to be very specific without knowing the exact details of the industries. It is not simply a thing of saying that the economy is growing 5% slower. So I can grow 5% slower. So that means if I'm growing at 50%, I grow at 45%, all that. It's not that simple to do it that way. It doesn't work that way. And by the way, 5% slower is actually 10% of the 50%, right? So it means cutting back your, your expansion by, okay. by 10%. And then I'd add to that, though, is it's much harder to penetrate a market where people are trying to dump inventory. Okay. Okay. And then the other problem you have is, well, let me put it a different way. If you are a low-cost supplier, sometimes it's possible to aggressively expand because you're the one that can cut your price and still make a profit. Oh. But if you're a average cost supplier or a high cost supplier, it's tough to survive a recession. Survive meaning to grow or like you're going to die? Well, it depends on how it, you could die or, or you could just, it depends on how you're structured. But, you know, if, if you have debt and you have to sell your product to make your payments and you may have cash flow problems and it may cause you to die. So I, I don't mean to be negative because we all know Amazon is growing very rapidly and, and Amazon keeps grabbing market share. And the people selling on Amazon, therefore, are getting market share. But the reality is that, you know, this is what uh, Schrumpeter, famous uh, Austrian economist, called creative destruction. And where he argued is that in a recession, the less efficient producers are precisely the ones that don't survive. Ah. 
And the efficient producers, the low-cost producers, are the ones who do supply. So if you are afraid of a recession the next year, you want to do everything you can to cut your costs now. So that so that when the cut your, you mean like cut your cost of doing business, not necessarily your retail price. Oh no, well not not don't cut your retail price yeah. until <laughs> until you have to. Yeah. But no, cost cut not price but cost. So okay. I'm talking okay. about Just business cost. Of course, you really always want to be as lean as you can because that's how you maximize profits. Sure. But in a in a recession, it becomes it may be life and death. If you're the low cost producer, you can cut your price. Your competitors can't follow you, and you can gain a lot of market share in those circumstances. But if you're not the low-cost producer, well, then you are potentially will be victimized by whoever it is who is the low-cost producer. Okay. So we can't necessarily predict the market changing. We don't know. You can't make specific advice to a general audience, right? right? So considering our chances of a recession are a little bit higher than average, should we just About double average? Is there a baseline advice? Like, well, the baseline advice would be if if your main cost is inventory. Well, actually, let me put it a different way. First of all, do you believe me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my money that's in the game, right? Sure. But then secondly, if you are someone who's a risk taker who doesn't, or even if you're not a, if you're someone who's willing to say, well, I I want to expand aggressively and I need to build inventory to expand aggressively. And I think that there's a 6% chance we won't have a recession. Then I'm going to still build my inventory so I can expand my sales. I think that's a reasonable strategy. Just try to figure out, have some sort of plan in mind if there is a recession and how you can get out of that situation if you find yourself in a cash flow fine. Okay. But we're, we're sitting on, I mean, recessions are like six months slight declines, right? And if we're sitting on inventory, I think most Amazon guys are, and girls are trying to do what, like two to three months of inventory. Yeah. I think it matters that much because I just, because I usually, I mean, there's lots of ways of predicting your inventory needs, but I generally just kind of look at like, what's the seasonality from last year? And what do we do in the last 60 days? And I kind of go Well, there. so that's the thing is if you are someone who has a very tight inventory control, these recession issues become less important. And I believe that's one of the reasons why the U.S. economy is having this very long expansion. One of the reasons why, if you look at the last three expansions, those last three expansions were the longest on record, one, two, and three, in the, for the United States. And the recessions with those, except for the 2007-2009 recession, which is, of course, in a different category, but these recessions have been relatively modest. And I think that one of the major reasons for that is because American businesses in general and online businesses in particular have gotten really good at inventory control. Yeah, uh, the nice thing is that when you think about it, when you're doing the Amazon thing, your major expense is inventory. Right. You probably have a little bit of payroll. That's not going to change during a recession. Unless you let people Most off. People, okay, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's that. And that's, um, by the way, one way of cutting costs in a recession. Yeah. Is, uh, I, I could afford a secretary or I could use a secretary, but now orders sure. are fewer and... And I may have to put in extra hours, but I can get by that. Yeah, separate. that's a good point. But we don't have overhead. We don't have, we usually aren't leasing spaces. We usually aren't doing any of that kind and, of stuff. And, and I think that gives you guys a big competitive advantage. And so I've been kind of talking about if you're competing with other Amazon sellers, but I think if you talk about Amazon sellers in general compared to other people in the economy, you guys might be able to take advantage of a recession as a whole, as a group, by the fact that because inventory control is critical to prepare for a 
recession. And one of the reasons I haven't been emphasizing that so much is because I, I talked to my son about his business. And uh-huh. he'll, he'll tell you that our favorite conversation is each is his business. Uh, and, and I know that Andrew and a lot of Amazon people spend a lot of time trying to keep inventory under control. And that's the biggest thing is not getting caught if you're with, uh, flat-footed with too much inventory. Yep. Okay, great. Well, I like that. I think that's good advice. Keep your... So don't be too afraid, but be a little weary. A little weary. That's a, weary. a good way, but Keep your inventory controlled and keep your expenses low. I think you're fine. I hope you're fine. I hope you're fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, you know, it also depends too if you have deep pockets or not. If you have deep pockets, that can help a lot. Oh, should we be sitting on more cash or like take a loan now versus well, like three months it, from now? I think it's a good idea if, if you can to uh, have a line of credit ready. Okay. And I think because it's going to be harder to get a line of credit after the recession sets in than it will be now. Whether you should take out, actually take cash out of that line of credit depends on what the circumstances. Some bankers kind of require you to borrow money to get the line of credit. But, you know, if they do, they do. Just my personal advice is be a little skeptical of debt. I do have a line of credit. It's an SBA loan. You have to be a U.S. citizen running a U.S. business to get that. So unfortunately, if you aren't a U.S. citizen, you can't get that. Or maybe a resident. I'm not sure exactly, but for sure, citizens can get it. I'm not sure if you're the other immigration statuses, but those are really nice. You can get a line of credit for, I have a $100,000 line of credit that I don't really ever use. It's like 7% and I got it from US Bank and it's all pretty good. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's good to know about recessions. So as a professor of business, do you think it's better to learn business in school or in real life? Well, both. Both. Okay. Yeah. I've, so there's this thing. Yeah, that's, that's the right answer. Right? Yes. There's this thing I've noticed inside of the entrepreneur community, both Amazon and non-Amazon. There's a bit of anti-intellectualism. What do you think about it? And the whole thing is like, why would I learn about doing business when I can just go do business? Well, the reason why it's a good thing to go to school and if you want to get a business degree, that's fine. But a business degree, you're going to learn things that may not be obvious to you. And yes, you can go out and learn them on your own, but that's expensive and costly. Paying tuition is a cheap way often to learn techniques that will help you do better. Besides getting a bachelor's or a master's degree in business, is there a way of learning, like formally learning, that's maybe easier than doing that? <laughs> well, if you're if you're a smart person, if you're Bill Gates, who, you know, we always talk about these people who have been very successful in business without a college degree. Uh, Bill Gates is one. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is another one. Rush Limbaugh always uh, brags about the fact he didn't go to college uh-huh. and yet he's worth <laughs> millions of dollars. But you got to remember that these people are geniuses, literally geniuses. Rush Limbaugh? Rush Limbaugh invented nationally syndicated talk radio. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I mean, these are people who, these are people, and, and Rush Limbaugh, I always think Rush Limbaugh is a kind of humorous, but I, I don't agree with his politics. Okay. I will agree. <laughs> but I just think he's fun to listen to as long as you don't take him seriously. But Zuckerberg, Gates, and you can name other people, uh, Edison, Henry Ford. But these are geniuses who invented whole new industries. And you know what Henry Ford hired? He hired college-educated engineers. You know what Bill Gates hires? He hires college-educated people. And if you ask Bill Gates, should I go to college? He'll say yes. And that's because you're not Bill Gates. And I also got to tell you one other thing, too. And again, people underestimate the importance of this. 
But college degree teaches you critical thinking skill. You actually are a better thinker. You're mm -hmm. a more you you're a better thinker after you finish college than you were before you started college. And people say, "Whoa, what do you mean?" I mean, I mean literally, college makes you smarter, makes you a better able to critically think your way through a problem. All right, there's our. Uh... PA, a public announcement. Yeah, and from... by the way, you can go to nmsu.edu. Uh... <laughs> slash enrollment. Slash, yeah. Use my affiliate link, Christopher Erickson, for 10% right. discount off your tuition. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious. I always like asking everyone who comes on the podcast what their big why is. So can you tell me what is your big why? Why do you do the professor thing? And why don't you just like a CEO of a giant company or something like that? Well, of course, I am the CEO of a, of a small family company. You know this, Andrew. It's a company called Eric's Enterprises. It uh, runs the farm, and we also have timber operation up in Oregon. It's very small, but still, it, it's uh, five or ten hours a week. Okay. So I kind of itch my entrepreneurial scratch with that, or scratch my entrepreneurial yeah. itch with that. <laughs> <laughs> but why am I a professor and so some other occupation? Well, first of all, being a professor... It's a really nice job. You do exactly what you want to do when you want to do. I have 12 hours a week I have to be somewhere. That's nine hours a week in class and three hours a week in office hours. And I super enjoy teaching. I'm a big ham. I like being in front of people and talking. Um, my, my sport, quote unquote, in high school was public speaking. And I just enjoy doing that. And then finally, I find economics fascinating. I am always interested. I've taught a course called Money and Banking for, I've taught it more than 125 times over 30 years. And every time I teach it, I find it interesting because it's current event oriented and I can always talk about current events. So that's why I do it. I just find it fascinating, entertaining. And I like being in front of people and talking and I like, and I enjoy the intellectual challenge of writing academic journal articles. And I, that's why I do it. Nice. I like that. That's good. So lifestyle, I think, is a big thing that a lot of people can resonate lifestyle with. Lifestyle is something that it's important to me to do. I also like asking everybody what your favorite media is. You have some books. I'm guessing you probably read maybe one book a year. <laughs> no, I read a lot of books. One book a day, maybe? Not a day. You're like but... about a weekly reader, right? Yeah, about yeah. a book a week reader. So what, what's a good, maybe not a textbook, but what's a good kind of like intro to economics, maybe like a fun, like a kind of a pop well, so there's, intro I'm going to cheat. You told me to keep it down to one, but I'm going to do okay. two, two <laughs> authors, two authors. One is Robert Schiller, who's wrote, he won the Nobel Prize 10 years ago or so. And he wrote a book called Exuberance, which was about overheated stock market. He just recently wrote a book called Narrative Economics about the importance of story and context for economics. You know, that if you can tell a good story, that will result in a particular economic outcome versus another story. And he's very, very good. And he's a what they call a behavioral economist, meaning that he thinks that behavioral, that human psyche is as important in economics as anything else. Okay. Uh, then the other person- so that's who, Robert Schiller, Irrational Exuberance. Yes. Okay. Yep. And then uh, Narrative Economics. And then the other one, uh, the other author that I would recommend is someone a lot of you are familiar with is Michael Lewis. And he did The Big Short. He did Flash Boys. Flash Boys, for anyone who wants to be a speculator in the stock market, uh -huh. <laughs> I suggest you read The Flash Boys as to why you don't want to uh, do it. Okay. Because uh, this is to say that there's no hope for individuals to beat the market because of that. And then, of course, he's also famous and perhaps the best business book ever written, at least about finance. 
is uh, Liar's Poker, which is just a fantastic book about the way um, financial investors work on Wall Street. And these are all like popular books, right? These are all popular books. They're meant, yes. And all, I think every book I've mentioned has been a non uh, fiction bestseller. Okay. For the popular. So Big Short, obviously, I think a lot of you guys might know, is the, the famous movie. And it's um, a great movie, too. Yeah, uh, about and, the, uh, the Great Recession. Yes, yes. And it's, or uh, the housing crisis in particular, right? Uh, well, yes, about housing. Well, yeah, it's about shorting the stock market. But yeah, it's about what they call uh, CMOs, collateralized mortgage obligations, which are, you know, mortgages. They're basically a bundle of mortgages that people are buying and selling. Okay. And then also, I always, uh, because we are a podcast, and most of us love podcasts who listen to podcasts. What is your favorite podcast besides the Zoncom podcast? Well, Zoncom is pretty much up there, but I do like Money for the Rest of Us. And the reason why I like it is because very often on that podcast, they talk about financial, you know, and I have to, I like to think of myself as being pretty well informed, but that podcast often comes up with topics that I've not heard of before. Nice. So, like so that's Money that. for the Rest of Us? Money for the Rest of Us. What's the name of the guy? Yeah, don't ask me. We'll have to look. It'll be in the show notes. But sure. it's a good podcast. I think I referred you to it. You right? did. You did. Yeah. You referred to me to about 10 different ones. And that's the only one I yeah. actually stuck to <laughs> over several years. That one's really good. I like that one a lot. It is a bit dense for like a casual listener. Yeah. It is definitely very approachable though. That's why it's called Money for the Rest of Us. It's a guy who does like personal investments and stuff. And he makes a podcast basically kind of explaining how to do personal investments. Yeah. And a little, some kind of general economic Well, yes. Too. And I don't hear him make very many mistakes. Okay. And that, I think that's important. No one's perfect. You know, another podcast, if you want to get, uh, and, and I, I recommend this one to you once, Andrew, and you said you didn't like oh. it. <laughs> yeah, econ talk, which I that think one is really... that one is dense. <laughs> yeah, if you want a really nice, very easy to consume podcast, that I love, love, love that's related to this is Planet Money. Oh yeah, I like that too. It's NPR style. They're all like 15, 20 minute episodes, and they pick one little thing to teach about. And one thing I love is they'll teach about accounting, which is generally a very boring topic. But they'll pick drug dealers and how they do with accounting. And they literally have, they have to employ, because in their business, drug dealers are businesses, right? But they'll employ all these different accountants, but they can't use all this fancy pants software and uh, traditional banks and stuff. So they have to literally count money and they have to talk about how they have to like load up their cars with special shocks so that when they load the trunk of their car with a million dollars, it doesn't weigh the back of the truck down too much. <laughs> That's like really fun. You learn about accounting, but not in like a really boring way. Learn like a really fun way. That's Planet Money. I do agree. Planet Money is a great podcast. And that's, by the way, is one of the few pod. In fact, maybe the only podcast I've ever assigned episodes from to my classes. Nice. So I always like to finish. We'll finish the podcast with the same question. What is one actionable thing that Amazon sellers can do today? Uh, control inventory. Control inventory. Yeah. You keep an eye on inventory. It's always important, but it's particularly important if you think there's a chance of recession. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Erickson, aka Dad, for thank, being here. Thank you, son. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> I'm <laughs> proud of your business, and I'm also proud of your podcast, and I think you're a great guy. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.